Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Beloved though he is today, Harry Truman in office was one of the most unpopular presidents in American history. General Douglas MacArthur, by contrast, was wildly popular. He had secured Allied victory in the Pacific, directed the occupation of Japan, and the lesson MacArthur drew from World War II was absolute. Appeasement leads to disaster. Applied to the Cold War, this meant that a showdown with the communists was inevitable and necessary, even though the Soviets now had nuclear weapons. The approaches of the two men, the audacity of MacArthur versus the patience of Truman, collided fatefully when communist North Korea invaded South Korea. Despite his growing distrust of MacArthur, Truman was forced to rely on him to turn the aggressors back, but when the general's reckless strategy drew China into the war, Truman astonished the world by firing MacArthur. A new book out from historian H.W. Brands recounts this history. It's called The General versus the President, MacArthur and Truman at the Brink of Nuclear War. H.W. Brands holds the Jack S. Blanton Senior Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin. He writes on American history and politics. His books include The Man Who Saved the Union, Andrew Jackson, The Age of Gold, and T.R. Several of his books have been bestsellers. Two, Traitor to His Class, and the first American were finalists for the Pulitzer uh, Prize. And for the past three years, uh, Brands has been writing a history of the United States in haiku form, publishing it on uh, Twitter. H.W. Uh, Brands uh, joins us for the hour. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Um, I want to get your, uh, first of all, we'll get into this fascinating history, which has resonance uh, to uh, today's world. Uh, but I wonder uh, what you thought of uh, last night's uh, debate. You have, and maybe frame it this way, uh, you wrote in Politico not long ago um, that, that you felt that political debates uh, tell us nothing about uh, who the president, uh, who, who the candidates would be as president. Well, I'm going to stand by that, and I'm going to have to stand by it in response to your question, because I didn't see the debate. I was actually talking about my MacArthur and Truman book. Uh, Okay. But but I will say that, I mean, it's a very odd thing that so much emphasis is placed on debate, because debates really do tell us almost nothing about what a president will do in office. Presidents are not asked to make a decision sort of on the spot without consulting those, without consulting advisors. Debates... They benefit, they give an advantage to those people who are agile on their feet. Presidents don't work on their feet, they work sitting down, and they work having access to their advisors. What we really need in presidents is not a glib tongue, but sound judgment. And the debates tell us almost nothing about the judgment of the president. What What about campaigning? I guess one thing would be it's, it's, it's an exhausting, grueling test of sorts, right? The years-long campaign for president. We all get tired, but what what about a campaign tells us, what what most tells us what a a person will be like in office? Well, in some respects, the one important decision that each nominee makes right upon getting the nomination, and that is, who does the nominee choose for vice president? Because then for the first time, we see a decision in real time that has potentially real consequences. Before then, and often after then, um, it's a matter of very hypothetical stuff. So a president will say, if I am elected, I will cut taxes here. I will send American military forces there. But it's easy to say when you're a candidate. It's a much different thing to actually make the decision. And the choice of a vice presidential nominee is that kind of decision. Because whether an administration succeeds or fails depends to a great deal on the people that they choose. Do they choose good people? 
and on what basis do they choose these people? Are these people the kind of folks who can make decisions, who can carry out the administration desires? How does that work? And so that, that one decision is the most important thing. Now, there are certain aspects of the campaigning that do reflect on how a candidate might do. For example, I mean, one of the things that presidents do, and the successful ones do well, is to communicate with the American people. So the great presidents that you can list, Lincoln, FDR, Reagan, they want to know how to communicate. And so a president who can communicate his message to the American people is one who has a far better chance of success than a president who cannot. And candidates, when they're campaigning, at certain times show their ability to communicate. But again, it's not what you see in debates. Because when a president is trying to convey his message as president, he's not responding to challenges from an opponent. He has the mic to himself. He has the camera to himself. But the ability to to convey a vision, that's important. And the best candidates can do it, although sometimes they can do it a lot better as candidates than they succeed as president. Barack Obama mm-hmm. is a very good example of someone who is a brilliant candidate. And all sorts of people thought, okay, if we elect Obama, we're going to get all of this. His slogan was, yes, we can, which is a very seductive and attractive slogan. Because you get to fill in, yes, we can, what? Well, anything you want. The trouble is, once you become president, the operative phrase is not, yes, we can, but no, you can't. Because presidents spend most of their time telling people they can't have what they want. And so it's almost the case that the better the candidate, the greater the disillusionment that sets in afterwards. Um, You mentioned judgment. Is that the most important consideration as as we... As we go, as we consider a candidate, uh, is that going to be the most important thing as a uh, this, this candidate as a president? I think that is because what presidents do. George W. Bush famously put it. He said, "I'm the decider." Yeah, and presidents decide. They have to adjudicate between competing positions. They have to evaluate the cases put to them by very often competing members of their cabinet or advisors, and they have to make good. Decisions. They have to demonstrate good judgment. The problem about this is there's no really good way to audition for that. Now, the closest approximation to being president is being governor of a state, because as governor of a state, you're the chief executive of the state, and you have to make decisions. And this is why many, uh, most of the uh, successful presidents have been governors before. Occasionally, presidents come from Congress, come from the Senate, and in the Senate, you get an idea of what policies a president would pursue, but you really don't get a measure of this person's judgment because senators, they're not executives. They don't actually make judgments. They don't make decisions on their own. You can be, if you're a successful senator, you have to have a compromising personality. Lyndon Johnson is perhaps the most successful senator to become president. He was a very powerful Senate Majority Leader in the 1950s. And he became a very good sort of legislator-in-chief as president because he knew how to get legislation passed. And so the stuff that he got passed through with the Great Society, the civil rights reforms, the war and poverty and all this, he probably got more passed than he had any right to or than probably was good for the country. But in the critical area of judgment where a president has to decide these things on his own in foreign policy, Johnson was woefully deficient. And the result of this was the American experience in Vietnam. 
if Johnson had had more decision-making experience, he probably would have been able better to decide whether the generals who were advocating more troops were selling them bill of goods, whether the people on the other side who said we need to pull out, you know, need to do something here. Johnson, Johnson tried to compromise his way through the war in Vietnam. Compromise works when you're a senator, as you know, one of a committee of 100. Um, it doesn't work when you're president of the United States. Hmm. Just a couple more things from the current campaign, then I want to get into this fascinating history, the general versus sure. the president. Um, uh, the first thing is, uh, Mr. Trump, uh, this was the headline, of course, that I'm sure you know from the debate last night. Uh, Mr. Trump refused to say whether he would concede the election if he lost. Um, uh, just double-checking this with a historian, uh, this does seem unprecedented to me. Yes, yes, it is unprecedented. The only close approximation was in 1824. When Andrew Jackson won more popular votes than John Quincy Adams, but didn't win a majority of the electors, the race went to the House of Representatives, where John Quincy Adams was chosen president. And the Jacksonians accused Adams of arranging a deal with Henry Clay, who was another candidate who was Speaker of the House, whereby Adams would get the presidency and, and uh, Clay would be appointed Secretary of State. And they complained about this backroom bargain, a corrupt bargain, they called it. But they didn't, they never disputed the vote count. And when Donald Trump is saying that the election is rigged and that he might not accept the results of the election, this, of all of the misguided things that Trump has said, this is perhaps the most dangerous because it undermines the very essence of democracy. Every other losing candidate has basically bowed to the will of the people. In 1960, Richard Nixon had grounds for questioning the vote in Illinois. It was a very close race. If Illinois had gone differently, the election might have gone differently. But he did not demand a recount because he understood that it's more important to the system of democracy to have a result that people can buy into than necessarily have the right result. A result, a result that is generally accepted is more important in certain cases than the, the numerically right result. Now, if, if Trump says the election is rigged, well, in the first place, at the moment it looks like he's going to lose by a lot of votes. And if he somehow claims that if he loses, I don't know, let's say 53% to 47%, 46%, if he somehow claims that the stolen votes would have changed that, that is such an outlandish claim that it's absolutely, it would be absolutely insupportable. Well, on the other hand, I mean, Trump has said a lot of insupportable things already, so I don't think there's any room for any more surprise at what he might say. Uh, last thing from the current uh, election season. Um, Mr. Trump continues to um, push back against Republican orthodoxy. Uh, one moment from last night's debate, uh, Mrs. Clinton brought up um, an ad that Mr. Trump had uh, taken out in the 1980s criticizing uh, President Reagan. I think it was specifically on a trade deal. Um, and, uh, of course, Republican orthodoxy has exalted uh, Reagan. He's an icon. Trump is, is not following that. Uh, I wonder where Reagan stands. Is he still a Republican hero? Trump is just an outlier, or, or has something changed here? Well, Reagan is still a Republican hero, or your term is, might be better. He's a Republican icon. And as an icon, he's sometimes more honored in the breach than the observance. Republicans like Reagan in their memory. They would have more trouble 
with Reagan in the reality if he somehow came back to life and ran for president now. Because the Republican Party has moved, has continued to move to the right. And so a lot of the stuff that Reagan did would be difficult for Republicans to swallow. Now, having said that, though, Donald Trump really is an outlier. I would be surprised if the Republican Party continues to turn its back on free trade generally. It's a popular position to take now that Donald Trump is the nominee and has gotten a lot of resonance. But the party as a party has been so committed to free trade since World War II that it would take a major reconsideration of the basic philosophy of the party to say we no longer are the party of free trade. And you know, a lot of other things that Reagan stood for. And one of the things that Reagan stood for was he didn't, he didn't run on this platform, but Reagan understood that politics is the art of the possible. Reagan rhetorically was 100% conservative, and the most zealous Tea Partyist from today would have very little to complain of in Reagan's rhetoric. But Reagan understood that once you get elected, you can't insist on perfection. Reagan used to say that he would rather get 80% of what he wanted than go over the cliff with his flag flying. Now, again, he didn't advertise that when he was campaigning, but he acted on that when he was president. But that's the sort of thing that is really difficult for a campaigner, a candidate for president, to say, elect me, and I'll only do 80% of what I want. Hmm. Uh, there's something about American political culture that essentially insists that the candidates promise the moon, even though, realistically, voters know in their heart of hearts they're not going to get the moon. But if they somehow say, you know, I'm not going to give you all you want, then they lose out to the person who says, oh, hey, I'll give you all you want. There's something about campaigning that drives the candidates to extremes. It's, it's almost like we have sort of this cult of the presidency going on, where we like to think that this new candidate is somehow going to step in and fix everything. And so we vote them in, and they don't fix everything. The prob these problems are hard problems because we disagree about them. And so we just set ourselves up for the disillusionment that sets in. Whoever gets elected in November is going to have a honeymoon that might last a millisecond. Mm -hmm. It won't even last until inauguration day. And so I sometimes wonder, with all the effort that's going into winning the presidency, do they really know what it is they're getting themselves into? And it seems like similar things happening on the side of Congress. You uh, increasing numbers, you know, the, the Freedom Caucus, for one example, uh, are insisting that we don't do 80%, we do 100% or nothing. And uh, yeah. it's just yeah. so, so polarized. Do you think, are you hopeful anything gets done in the next four years? I'm, I always try to be hopeful. I can't honestly say I'm expecting much change. Part of the issue is that the two political parties have become sifted out philosophically. When, even those latest when Reagan was president, there were such things as conservative Democrats. And there were still a few liberal Republicans, which meant that in every one of Reagan's important legislative initiatives, he could reach across the aisle and say, this is a bipartisan reform. So the budgets, the tax cuts, those were bipartisan. The tax reform of 1986, the immigration reform of 1986, the Social Security overhaul of 1983, all of those got both Republican and Democratic votes. But the parties have become polarized. It really started in the 1960s when Lyndon Johnson put the Democratic Party firmly on the side of civil rights reform. 
which was the signal to conservative white Southern Democrats that they no longer felt welcome in the party, in the Democratic Party. So they migrated from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Now we're in a situation where all the Republicans are conservatives and all the Democrats are liberal. And pretty much everybody in the Republican Party is to the right of everybody in the Democratic Party. In the 1960s, there was a huge overlap. And so it was possible to get this bipartisan kind of support for important measures. The other thing is that the art of gerrymandering has become perfected, if that's the right word, so that it's very rare that seats in Congress are competitive between the parties. The competition takes place almost entirely within the parties, which means that if you're a Democrat and you expect a challenge, the challenge will come in the primary and it's going to come over your left shoulder. If you're a Republican, the challenge comes over your right shoulder. This pulls the parties apart. And then the last thing is the the re-emergence, and I call it the re-emergence of a partisan media, because this is the way newspapers were in the 19th century. They lined up very clearly with one party or or another. But from the dawn of the radio age and into the early television age, the, the major radio networks and the major television networks didn't choose sides. The FCC, the rules of the Federal Communications Commission, basically required them to play down the middle. But with the emergence of cable TV, then you see the, the rise of Fox News on the right, MSNBC on the left. And so people can live in their own reality these days. And so if you watch Fox News, you think that Hillary Clinton is the most corrupt person in American history because that's what you've been hearing for the last 20 years. And if you watch MSNBC, you've been hearing similarly nasty things about Republicans. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a sociologist in the 1960s, used to say, that everybody is entitled to his own opinions, but not his own facts. But people these days get their own facts served up to them. And in a setting like that, it's nearly impossible to get any kind of agreement across party lines. So I'm always hopeful, but I'm not very expectant. Let's go to a caller. Uh, by the way, the uh, go to Paul and Logan, who called 800-826-1495. You can as well, 800-826-1495. H.W. Brands, acclaimed historian. The new book is The General and versus the President, MacArthur and Truman at the Brink of Nuclear War. We'll get talking to that uh, after a break. Uh, Paul and Logan, um, thanks for uh, calling. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, sure. The uh, conversation progressed a little since I called in, but I wonder if I could get the speaker to back up to this uh, idea of uh, you know, all this rhetoric about the election being rigged, but also not not uh, coming out and saying whether you accept it or not. I'm very concerned about uh, the, the way things have polarized uh, uh, potential for uh, a, a real bad reaction afterwards who people are strong supporter, supporters of Donald Trump, potentially even violence when someone uh, says we um, makes these uh, cr- claims of being rigged when there's very little objective uh, evidence that any percentage beyond 1%, perhaps, or even much lower, of voters uh, actually committing fraudulent acts. I-, I wonder if the speaker could respond to, one, the level of, uh, of fraudulent voting that's actually been proven, and number two, the, the kind of dangerous precedent being set by this, uh, the potential to really whip people up in, the, in a bad direction for our country. So I'll hang up and let take it off the line. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. In the last century, there has been no evidence of voter fraud in any numbers that ever came close to swaying an election, a presidential election. City council, maybe school board aldermen, 
but not at the national level. Basically, you would have to you'd have to steal or or cram too many votes into the ballot box for this to happen. And so, for Trump to make this claim with no evidence to to back it up is, to me, quite irresponsible. And it's very corrosive of the way democracy has to work because. Well, Winston Churchill said that democracy is the worst form of government except for everything else that has been tried. But the the strength of democracy is its legitimacy. We get a chance to choose our president and other elected officials. We get to choose our presidents. You might not like the president, but he is ours. We had a chance to choose him. If somehow people come to believe that we don't actually choose him, that there are these sinister forces that are choosing the president for us, then that basically undercuts that one pillar that holds democracy in place. I'm not one who, is, who has said that Donald Trump is a fascist. He's a far, he's a far cry from, from a fascist. But I will say that fascism and, and other assaults on democracy very often begin with one party or candidate rejecting the results of an election, saying the election was stolen, it was rigged, and therefore we don't have to abide by its results. That's a very dangerous road to go down. Let's take a break. When we come back, we will uh, we'll go back in history. Uh, the General versus the President is the book. MacArthur and Truman at the Brink of Nuclear War is the subtitle. H.W. Brands is with us. This history does have a lot of resonance uh, to today, and we'll, we'll bring it full circle as, as we uh, go along. We'll also hear voices of these two men. We'll hear the voices of Douglas MacArthur and uh, Harry Truman more following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Partners in Business 41st Annual Accounting Conference, Thursday, October 27th at the USU Eccles Conference Center, featuring keynote speaker Brooke Detterline, CEO, Courageous Leadership, Details at partners.usu.edu and Cafe Ibis celebrates the life of co-founder Randy Wirth. We remember his knowledge, his hard work, his compassion for the environment and social justice, his dedication to the Logan community and to riding Great Wave. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're pleased to have with us acclaimed historian H.W. Brands. Uh, he is author most recently of The General versus the President, MacArthur and Truman at the Brink of a Nuclear War. Um, and uh, as a transition from uh, what we were talking about, the, the current race for the presidency, to uh, some history, I was interested, H.W. Brands, in um, a, an interview you gave to the New York Times. This is, I think, a, a regular series. They asked writers what they're reading and... Uh, uh, your answer is very interesting. Um, maybe we'll loop back to some of this other uh, at the end of the program if we have time. By the way, you mentioned on your nightstanders, you say you don't have a nightstand piling up on the floor. Uh, among those books is P.G. Woodhouse. So I, I you know, high five through the radio. I love P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, you also said uh-huh. that uh, one of your favorite authors is uh, Barbara Tuckman. And I, I, I love Barbara Tuckman. Yes. Uh, Guns of August. I've, I've been rereading uh, the, the Proud Tower. Um, and, uh-huh. and you went on to say that uh, you thought perhaps if you could choose a book that would be required reading for presidents, it would be The Guns of August. Why? why? Because it shows how 
leaders of great nations can really screw up. How, how the, the downside potential of decisions of president, secretaries of state, prime ministers, is, generally speaking, much greater than the upside potential. Countries go to war thinking that they can resolve big problems. They can, uh, they can find weapons of mass destruction. They can install democracy in South Korea, South Vietnam, the Middle East. They can do this. They can do that. And they are almost always frustrated, disillusioned, and wrong. And so the Guns of August is the story of how Europe went to war in 1914. At the beginning of Barbara Tuckman's story, Europe had been in peace for a century, and there was an entire theory of international relations that said that peace is the norm, that we figured out how to get past war. We're now too civilized for all of this. And we trade with our neighboring countries. We have cultural exchange. We have all this stuff. War has become impossible. And then in the course of six weeks, between June of 1914 and August of 1914. All of this fell apart. And a small event in an out-of-the-way place in the Balkans, the assassination of the heir to the throne of the Empire of Austria-Hungary, the assassination of this guy leads one thing to another to another, and before anybody knows it, Europe is at war, the worst war in world history to that time. So anybody who becomes president, and this would apply if you're a prime minister of Europe or someplace like that. Keep in mind that you probably think you're pretty smart, and that's why you're here. And because you're smart, you can do all these things that are going to change the world. And so this is an object lesson in be very careful, because you quite likely are going to screw things up if you get too ambitious. Let's, uh, as an introduction into this uh, fascinating uh, history of the general versus the president, we're talking about MacArthur and Truman. Um, let's hear let's hear their voices. Uh, let's hear a couple of sound clips. These are clips number one and two. First of all, Douglas MacArthur, his famous speech, I Shall Return. He's been, uh, World War II has been, American forces have been pushed off for the Philippines. He's promising that they uh, will return, which of course he did. And then Harry Truman announcing the uh, bombing of Hiroshima. I landed on your soil. I said to the people of the Philippines whence I came, I shall return. Tonight, I repeat those words. I shall return. Nothing is more certain than the ultimate reconquest and liberation from the enemy. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production 
and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history, and we have won. But the greatest marvel is not the size of the enterprise, its secrecy, or its cost, but the achievement of scientific brains in making it work. So those are the voices of Douglas MacArthur and Harry Truman. Those are the two protagonists in the new book, The General versus the President. H.W. Brands, the author, is, is with me. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about each of these men, maybe starting with President uh, Truman uh, and, uh, and sort of how they're viewed. You, uh, you point out that, beloved though he is today, Harry Truman has certainly risen up to uh, be included in lists of great presidents. At the time, he was uh, sort of seen as accidental president, right? He was just happened to be the vice president oh, he certainly, when he FDR died. Was. First, I'd like to comment on that inspired selection of clips because it really characterizes the two men with MacArthur. He doesn't say, we shall return. He doesn't say, American forces are going to liberate the Philippines. I shall return. And MacArthur was, first of all, very melodramatic. But he's also very egocentric. And he believed that the United States was going to win this war because he was going to lead it to victory. With Truman, I mean, Truman is probably saying the most revolutionary thing, he does use that term, the most revolutionary thing an American president has ever said that he's announcing the dawn of the nuclear age. But he does it in this very flat Midwestern voice. It's very clear that he is reading this speech. And so you, you can sort of hear the difference in character between these two. Now, in response to the, the question you had, yeah, Truman, Truman was the unlikeliest of presidents. In fact, he was a very unlikely vice president. He became vice president only because the Democratic Party revolted against Franklin Roosevelt who had been nominated for his fourth term, but seemed to want to have as his vice president, the vice president he had before, Henry Wallace, who was a very, who was a very liberal guy, sort of an arch, unreconstructed New Dealer. And Democrats had been getting pretty restive for the fact that Roosevelt was hanging around. There were Democrats who thought that they ought to have a chance to be president. And by this time, the luster had gone off of the New Deal. And it had moved, the, the party had moved to the right of where Henry Wallace was. The Democrats at the convention in 1944 could look at Roosevelt and they could see this guy might not last through his fourth term. And the last thing they wanted was Henry Wallace to inherit the presidency. So they say to Roosevelt, you've got to get rid of this guy. You've got to get somebody else. And so Roosevelt just sort of almost you know, picks a number out of the, the Senate and says, okay, this guy, Harry Truman who was known for some good work on the Senate committee, but he had no reputation. Uh, and he had to be talked into accepting the vice president. He wasn't sure that Roosevelt was serious. When Truman became president, he knew nothing about being president. He didn't even know about the Manhattan Project and the, the attempt to build the atom bomb. He had to be taken aside by the, sec- uh, the Secretary of War the, the next day and say, Mr. President, there's something you need to know. And so he didn't know anything about the major policies, and Truman was the one who had to guide the United States to victory in the, the end of the war in Europe and then the war in Asia. And so, uh, he again, when he, was, when he learned that Franklin Roosevelt had died, he said he felt as though the moon, the stars, and the whole universe had fallen upon him. And he turned to some news correspondents, 
boys, I don't know if you ever pray, but if you do, pray for me now, because I'm going to need it. So here's this guy who becomes president of the United States at this critical moment. Douglas MacArthur, meanwhile, was the most celebrated, the most decorated soldier in the U.S. Armed Forces. He was a hero of World War I. He was a hero of World War II. He was known as the most brilliant cadet ever to go through West Point. He rose rapidly to the highest ranks in the military. He had been commandant at West Point. He was sent out by Franklin Roosevelt from Washington to the Philippines at a time when the Philippines was transitioning from colony to independence. And he was made a field marshal in the Philippine Army, the only American general to have been a field marshal. And so he was this guy who, in sort of in every imaginable way, except sort of a narrow reading of the Constitution, outranked the President of the United States. And this was Truman's problem, in that Truman had some ideas that clearly differed from MacArthur's regarding how the Cold War, as it developed, ought to be waged. But he couldn't politically afford to contradict MacArthur. MacArthur, meanwhile, felt perfectly free to contradict the President of the United States. And for about five years, there was this question, so who's in charge here? Is it MacArthur or is it Truman? Now, it wasn't a huge deal when MacArthur was simply head of the American occupation of Japan. And he did a remarkable job there. There's, I cannot find an instance in history where an individual accomplished the transformation of a great country like Japan the way MacArthur did in the five, five years from 1945 to 1950. But it just made him all that more untouchable by this president, who was an accidental president, until he squeaked to victory in his own right in 1948. But even then, he was constantly being bombarded by Republicans in Congress and the rest of the country. So at the moment the Korean War begins in 1950, if you had to choose between these two guys, Douglas MacArthur and Harry Truman, you would say that it is MacArthur who's the one who has sort of the spotlight of history upon it, not Harry Truman. And, of course, this is the dawn of the nuclear age. Uh, the stakes couldn't be higher. Uh, tell us a little bit about the differing visions. The, the two men had very different visions about how not only to prosecute the war, but uh, but uh, how how to get along with other nations and, and how to tread in the world uh, with with this you know nuclear cloud, you know quote unquote hanging hanging over the world. Yeah. So in a nutshell, the Korean War was all about an attempt by communist North Korea to conquer anti-communist South Korea and reunify the peninsula. The United States got involved because Truman decided that the communists, having just won a great victory in next-door China, he couldn't afford, and the world couldn't afford, for the communists to win another victory in Korea, despite the fact that Korea itself was not particularly strategically important. If it had to do with American credibility, it had to do with President Truman's credibility, because Truman had articulated the Truman Doctrine that said that the United States would oppose the, oppose the expansion of communism. This was the containment policy. So communism in Korea needed to be contained. So this is what the Korean War was basically about. But the question was, was the relatively small war in Korea going to become larger? And Douglas MacArthur believed it would, it should, and it must, because MacArthur had this chronic tendency that theater commanders often demonstrate, and in the military and sometimes in the State Department, it's called theateritis, that they think that their particular theater is the cockpit of the world. 
And so when MacArthur was the commander of Allied forces in the southwestern Pacific, he thought this was where the World War was going to be won or lost. And he found himself constantly at loggerheads with George Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff in Washington, and with Dwight Eisenhower, who was the commander for American forces in Europe. And so MacArthur was always saying, more resources here, more resources here. We need to focus on winning here. Well, he did the same thing when the Korean War broke out, because he believed that, in essence, World War III had begun. World War II was democracy against fascism, and democracy won that one. World War III was going to be democracy against communism. And when the fighting began, the first sort of hot fighting in the Cold War, MacArthur believed this is it. MacArthur also was of that old school, and it's very... Uh, powerful and appealing school that says, you know, war is war, and if you're going to go to war, fight all out to win. And this put him directly in contradiction to Harry Truman, who believed that World War III had not begun, and Truman was in a peculiar position to, to realize and to say, no, World War III has not begun, because Harry Truman was the only person in history, he remains the only person in history, ever to have ordered the use of nuclear weapons in warfare. And Truman understood that as bad as World War II had been, a war that ended with the use of nuclear weapons, World War III would be far worse because it would begin with the use of nuclear weapons. Just months before the outbreak of the war in Korea, the Soviet Union acquired nuclear weapons. So it was one thing for the United States to use nuclear weapons against Japan in 1945 when Japan couldn't shoot back with nuclear weapons. But should the Korean War expand to include China. And if it included China, it would almost certainly include China's new ally, the Soviet Union, which had nuclear weapons. It would be a nuclear World War III. When I decided to do the book, I was, I was aware that the, sort of the, the signature crisis, nuclear crisis, the Cold War is often thought to be the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and that was a scary moment. But that crisis was kind of the obvious one, where the President of the United States is going head-to-head -head against the leader of the Soviet Union. And a uh, nuclear war might break out. The thing that really appealed to me and, and struck me about the crisis of 1951 was that it was a crisis, and it might lead to a nuclear war. But it was a crisis within the American government between these two competing schools of thought. MacArthur says, we're at war, we need to go all out. And Truman says, no, we're not really at war. The Cold War is different, and I don't want it to expand into a nuclear war. And so that's the essence of the book. It's the conflict between these two personalities, very powerful and appealing personalities in their right, but also these two fundamentally different schools of thought about how the communist challenge ought to be confronted. And uh, we can bring this right to today. Uh, I, you know, as we are recounting, you're recounting this history, uh, I'm thinking of, of the concerns uh, that some have over uh, Mr. Trump um, perhaps not knowing some of this history and, uh, and some of the underpinnings of, of the world order, um, says somewhat casually, well, maybe Japan should have nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, maybe some of these other yeah. countries should have nuclear weapons. Maybe we should uh, reconsider NATO. And it's a the idea that, that, yeah, the idea that Americans have long had that peace is peace and war is war is very appealing because it makes the world simple. And it's the model that Americans adopted in World War II. World War II remains in American memory the good war. It was a war when the United States was on, clearly on the side of good. And Hitler and the fascists, they were on the side of evil. And we fought all out, and we won. And then we could come home and go about our business. 
Ever since, the United States has not had a war like that. In fact, wars like that are the exception rather than the norm. But for Americans, especially who were alive in the middle of the 20th century, that's the model. Everything since then has been frustrating in one fashion or another. Korea was the first example of a limited war. We can't go all out because it would lead to a nuclear war that might annihilate the planet. The United States did not go all out in Vietnam. The United States is not able to go all out in what's been called the war on terrorism since 9-11. Because the, in the case of the war on terror, you don't exactly know who to bomb or where they are or what to do. And if you try to go after them, the, the consequences can be worse than the problem. So when George W. Bush ordered American troops to do Iraq, this was going to prevent the possibility of Saddam Hussein getting weapons of mass destruction and perhaps stabilize the Middle East. The Middle East is more unstable than ever, and there's a direct path between that decision and the fracturing of Iraq, the rise of ISIS, the civil war in Syria. And so it's very frustrating. The United States is the most powerful country on Earth, but it can't deal with these challenges that it faces. This has been the case since the Korean War. It remains the case today. And when Donald Trump cites Douglas MacArthur as one of his favorite generals and talks about, well, maybe we should reconsider NATO. Maybe Japan you know, needs nuclear weapons. And this is a path to tread down very carefully because as frustrating as the world sometimes is to the United States, we haven't had World War III. And I guess what I should say is we haven't had World War III yet. And so there are worse things than the war on terror. There are worse things even than America's defeat in Vietnam. You know, the worst things are World War III. And the Russians still do have thousands of nuclear weapons. And there are nuclear weapons in several other countries around the world. So, I mean, this is why Harry Truman, when he fired Douglas MacArthur, when, there, when the contradictions between the two became so great that Truman had to fire him, uh, Truman was exceedingly unpopular at the moment because Americans were acting on their frustration about, boy, you know, we really, I wish we could win the war in Korea the way we won the war against Japan and Germany. But over time, history vindicated Truman because eventually Truman's patient resolve paid off. If you looked at Truman in 1951 when he fired MacArthur, his popular approval rating as measured by Gallup was the lowest that Gallup has ever recorded for any president before or after, 22%. That was lower than Richard Nixon at the depths of the Watergate scandal. Hmm. And Truman remained in the historical doghouse for decades afterwards. But it was only when the United States won the Cold War, when Truman's policy of patient resolve, the policy of containment, actually paid off. And the United States won the Cold War, basically on Truman's terms. The people could finally say, you know, in that, in that uh, fight between MacArthur and Truman, early on it looked like MacArthur might have the better part of it, but now that we see how everything's played out, you know, I'm glad that Truman was the one who made the final decision. We're talking with H.W. Brands. Uh, his book is The General versus the President. You're welcome to join the conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com. Let's take another break when we come back. In our last segment, I want to hear another couple of uh, clips. We'll hear uh, Truman firing MacArthur, and we'll hear uh, MacArthur's uh, famous speech to Congress, uh, the, the clip, Old Soldiers Never Die. We'll hear the aftermath of the the famous uh, showdown between these uh, two great historical figures. More follows the break. 
Did you know that the damage to the brain brought on by Alzheimer's disease may begin years or even decades before you begin to show signs of memory problems? That is why it is never too early to start making these healthy lifestyle changes. Heart-healthy behavior can also significantly reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. You can start now doing things that would be good for you anyway, like maintaining a healthy weight, eating right, getting regular exercise, managing stress, and nurturing healthy relationships. It also helps to get enough sleep. And of course, your risk to both your heart and your brain is lower if you don't smoke. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra presents the Halloween Spooktacular Family Pops Concert Saturday, October 29th with matinee and evening performances in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at AmericanFestivalChorus.org and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement online at utahhumanities.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We reached our last segment with H.W. Brands. He's author most recently of The General versus the President, MacArthur and Truman at the Brink of Nuclear War. Uh, so the beginning of this segment, uh, let's hear a, a couple of sound clips. These are the, the voices of the two men involved. Uh, first of all, let's hear uh, uh, Harry Truman, the president, announcing that uh, he is uh, firing the very popular uh, general, uh, Douglas MacArthur. And then uh, we'll go directly to the, the last clip um, with Douglas MacArthur, uh, his speech to Congress. He uh, returns to ticker tape parades. He speaks to Congress I believe he has presidential aspirations. We'll talk about that, the aftermath. Well, let's hear these two clips, three and four. The question we have had to face is whether the communist plan of conquest can be stopped without a general war. Our government and other countries associated with us in the United Nations believe that the best chance of stopping it without a general war is to meet the attack in Korea and defeat it there. I've thought long and hard about this question of extending the war in Asia. I've discussed it many times with the ablest military advisors in the country. I believe with all my heart that the course we are following is the best course. I believe that we must try to limit the war to Korea for these vital reasons, to make sure that the precious lives of our fighting men are not wasted, to see that the security of our country and the free world is not needlessly jeopardized, and to prevent a third world war. A number of events have made it evident that General MacArthur did not agree with that policy. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. It was with the deepest personal regret that I found myself compelled to take this action. General MacArthur is one of our greatest military commanders. But the cause of world peace is much more important than any individual. I am closing 
my 52 years of military service. But I still remember the refrain of one of the most popular barrack ballads of that day, which proclaimed most proudly that old soldiers never die. They just fade away. One of the most uh, famous moments in, in uh, any moment in front of Congress, uh, General MacArthur, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. Previous to that, uh, General, uh, President Truman firing Douglas MacArthur. H.W. Um, Brands, we just have about three minutes left. Uh, the, the aftermath that you've talked about, that uh, President Truman's uh, popularity was it uh, went to historic lows. It's only in the succeeding decades that his re- reputation has been rehabilitated. Um, General MacArthur, uh, you're right, um, he came home uh, thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to run for president. I'll, I'll succeed President Truman. There was one school of thought among Truman's advisors that said that MacArthur actually set himself up to be fired so he could come home and campaign against the president. MacArthur had had presidential ambitions for some while. He ran against Franklin Roosevelt in 1944, uh, not taking off his uniform. He ran against his commander-in-chief. He didn't do very well. He ran against Truman in 1948, again, while still in uniform. MacArthur believed that he was far better qualified to be president of the United States than either Franklin Roosevelt, that's quite improbable, or Harry Truman, that seemed more probable than most people. But still, he thought that he could be a very good president. So when he came back from Korea, and he spoke to Congress. He saw that as, in essence, a campaign speech. And when he said, old soldiers never die, they just fade away, he had no intention of fading away. And he went directly from there out onto the campaign. And he campaigned for president unsuccessfully because it turned out that there was another general who thought that he could be president too, a general who had a better sense of American political culture, uh, a, a general who understood that it was important to be accessible. MacArthur was never accessible. Dwight Eisenhower was. And Dwight Eisenhower is the one who got the Republican nomination and was elected president. Must have been pretty galling. Eisenhower was a former assistant, right, to, the, <laughs> to, to MacArthur. Oh, it was, it was horribly galling because MacArthur never thought Eisenhower was particularly great stuff. And it simply reminded him that, reminded MacArthur, the democracy was really unreliable. It could choose somebody like Harry Truman, and then it could choose Dwight Eisenhower over him. He never quite got over it, and he lived out the rest of his life sort of wishing that things had been different, that the American people had greater enlightened opinion. And, you know, you could, we could draw a bit of that conclusion that, uh, you know, democracy can, can be pretty unpredictable. History has judged Truman to be a great president, uh, MacArthur, uh, you know, did, did some great work, but uh, perhaps would not have been a, a great president. We'll never know, of course. I wonder, just a minute uh, left, uh, comparing and contrasting the, the, the two people and, and, you know, paralleling that with the decision that we're going to make on November 8th. What, uh, what about Harry Truman made him a great president? The strength of Harry Truman was it turned out he really had good judgment. That was something we talked about earlier on in the hour. And it's something that nobody knew he had before he became president. And very often, we don't know, because the decisions that people make before they become president are not like the decisions they make when they become president. So in that regard, we, are, we really don't know what we're getting into when we elect most people president. 
MacArthur would not have made a good president because he didn't have that understanding you have to connect with the American people. MacArthur was brilliant as a de facto emperor of Japan. And he would have come back to the United States thinking he could have been like that in the United States. It worked in post-war Japan. It would not have worked in the United States. Harry Truman was that every man that people could identify with. Douglas MacArthur was not like every man. And for Americans to form that emotional connection is really important in a successful presidency. Franklin Roosevelt was able to do it during the Great Depression, Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. Truman did during the early, well, I should say he, he did enough to get elected in 1948. But the reason that people like Harry Truman now is precisely because he does seem like that ordinary guy who made good. Well, we've reached the end of our time. The book is a fascinating book, uh, The General versus the President, MacArthur and Truman at the Brink of Nuclear War. The author is historian H.W. Brands, and we'll just have to, no time to talk about it here, we'll have to refer people to the website, H.W. Brands, um, for um, his history of the United States in haiku form, which he's currently uh, putting out on uh, Twitter. H.W. Uh, Brands, a pleasure always. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.